Hello, everybody. This is Two Guys Five Movies. This is one of your co-hosts, Chris Casper. This is Frank Pelican. Tonight's episode is episode 130, and we are covering the top five films of 1971. That starts the end of the year for us, where we'll be covering the top five films of 71, 81, 91, and 2001 over the course of the next month. Um, one of my favorite is what this tradition we've started frank i guess like uh, the end of the year is um is one of my favorites because we always get to watch like good movies um to kind of like cap the year off um and plus because you've seen a hell of a lot more than me i get to see some things i've never seen before usually um for the first time which is always nice so were any uh, of these five first time movies oh uh, two of them were oh mm-hmm. that's interesting yep um the last two that we're going to talk about, I'd never seen before. Hmm. Um, and we are going to change tradition a little bit this year. Um, rather than doing like a ranks top five list, we're just going to go ahead and just kind of like talk about each of the five movies um, for this, which I, the more I thought about it when you mentioned it earlier, Frank, feels a little bit more like, you know, fair and doesn't put you on the spot of like having to like rank like what is always going to be like five, like, you know, like really good movies so <laughs> right ends up just being arbitrary honestly right if you put them in some kind of ranked order yeah. so honestly it makes sense for the fresh five to some degree too but um <clears throat> um so yeah i remember you sending me like a month and a half ago uh that i saved like a really long list of like kind of like possibilities for each of these years um so were there any that came close you know, to making the list, do you remember? Yeah, um, I strongly consider putting the last picture show uh, back on the list, even though we've talked about it because I like that movie so much. Um, Clockwork Orange was close, I think, too. It's another one that we've talked about, but also a movie that I, I just think is a really, you know, important, important movie and well done. Um, then there was some, like, I guess more like genre specific uh, movies like Vanishing Point um which i love uh the devils um ken russell movie it's really good uh fistful of dynamite which is part of the uh ennio morricone um sergio leone clint eastwood trilogy of man with no name movies um and uh duel the spielberg Mm. movie um about the car guy trying to escape like a basically serial killer in the desert um all those movies were really good uh, but for whatever reason i just whether i think they'd fit better on another list somewhere else or i didn't know they were up to the standard of the other five movies just kind of got left off um the the only one i'm not familiar with there is the devils what what is that you said it's ken russell but it's a maybe a horror movie maybe more like exploitation movie is the better way but um hard to explain in like a very short description definitely worth watching i mean ken russell's a pretty pretty crazy dude and very talented director um it just doesn't really like it it'll find its way onto a list someday i think because i really like it but i just don't know like what list that's gonna be Gotcha. I'm surprised I never made you watch it before, actually. No, I don't remember this um, at all. No. Um, hopefully, it'll be available by the time you put it on the list because it doesn't look like it's anywhere right now. 
No, I think I might own it on DVD. Maybe. I don't know. It might be up on YouTube, too, but although I don't think that's true. It'll be somewhere. We'll find it. You'll be all right. Right. I mean, yeah. I've had to find a couple things recently um, through other means. Other means. Other. Um, All right. So did you want to go ahead and jump in? Yeah, we can go ahead and start with number five. All right. So the first movie you wanted to talk about, uh, we discussed on episode 22 of the podcast, the top five romantic comedies. Um, and it is Harold and Maul, directed by Hal Ashby, starring Bud Cord and Ruth Gordon, has an 84% from critics on Rotten Tomatoes and 93% from audiences. So um, I, this feels like one of the ones you just couldn't leave off this list. Yeah, Harold and Maul is um, one of those like quirky, I mean, India isn't the right term for it, but almost like art house movies that I found when I was really young that um, really caught my interest and kind of exposed me to, I guess, more of like a, like a counterculture mindset. Um, and, you know, again, like you said, we talked about this in a previous episode, um, so no need to really like belabor like a long plot description, but follows a May, November, maybe not even maybe but like March, November romance between um, Bud Court's Harold and uh, Ruth Gordon's Maud. Um, Bud Court being a um, what is he like 21, 22 year old kid um, who's kind of obsessed with death and stages like his own mock executions all the time to the chagrin of his like rich socialite mother. And Ruth Gordon who's a eccentric older woman i I think she's 80 maybe or something Mm -hmm. um and they kind of fall in love with each other and it just sort of explores like the the taboo nature of that romance and the nature of like what romance is anyway and um really good uh soundtrack from cat stevens um who you told me the other night and i wasn't aware was in the process of writing. Did you say it was T T for the T, Tillerman? T, T for the Tillerman, yeah, that he was writing. Yep. Um, while he was also making music for this album. So some of it is, I guess, like basically like experimentations of what would become songs for T for the Tillerman. Yeah. <clears throat> Most famously, though, is the If You Want to Be Free, Be Free song that plays. Um, what probably like five or six times, maybe more than that over the course of the movie. Yeah. Um really beautifully filmed by ashby uh there's a lot of a lot of scenes that take place out in like open scenic environments um court really just kind of imbues the character with this quirky earnest like innocence basically um it's a really memorable performance uh same with ruth gordon just playing this old woman with like the heart of a teenager basically um and even though like it's an odd romance from like the traditional perspective of our like modern societal thinking like it makes sense and you know you kind of kind of pull for them to i don't know maybe you don't really pull for them but um it's it's interesting to watch the romance develop between them and for her in the twilight of her life to basically force Harold to become like a real person almost um and actually <clears throat> confront his own feelings and 
like actually behave like a human being as opposed to um a caricature really which is kind of what he is at the beginning of the movie um but really well filmed some great dialogue um again soundtrack is excellent um cinematography is really good um Hal Ashby who was kind of an outsider in Hollywood for a long time does a fantastic job like directing this movie um and definitely worth watching and one of the, the best movies of the year and one of the more memorable movies i think that if you've never seen it once you see it for the first time like it kind of sticks with you in a lot of ways so yeah yeah no i i, I agree i think i like this movie the more i watch it um it's only something i think i've seen four times i probably this is probably the fourth time i've watched it um throughout my life i watched it twice like fairly young i guess and then um twice in the past couple of years now and um yeah i think i like this more because i'm I, i'm starting to like see the artistry behind it and you're right i think ashby is it's like the, the one thing we'll we'll end up talking about someday i'm assuming um despite like you know uh your reservations probably is the graduate um mm. and i I know the graduates like held up as this kind of like, you know, kind of an anti, you know, uh, what conservatism, like, you know, like suburban conservatism, like, you know, like all that kind of stuff. Like this does to me like a much better job um, with that kind of stuff than the graduate does, honestly, uh, the more I watch this. And um, I, I think that not just their relationship, but the relationship between mother and son and what he's kind of like rebelling against in a lot of ways is just as important to this movie um, as that relationship that's so focused upon. And yeah, I, um, yeah, I really like this a lot more. And yeah, like the Cat Stevens, I, I really, I realized that like it adds that sense of carefree and whimsiness, I think to a lot of it by having his songs there um, to help propel, which is what is a pretty dark, plot early on with all these like you know obviously kid crying out through these like staging of suicide attempts um it allows you to kind of still you know smirk at the things rather than be disturbed i think to some degree by the by, by what's going on so yeah i i yeah if you've never seen it definitely watch it um but yeah a great movie yeah. Yeah. stood the test of time i think even now to 50 years later you know yeah, it's just, I mean, it's been almost 30 years since I saw this movie for the first time, and I always find new things every time I see it. So, yeah. All right. So the other movie that we've talked about previously, and this was in episode 27, um, the top five crime films of the 1970s, was William Friedkin, Friedkin's The French Connection, starring Gene Hackman, Roy Schneider, Fernando Ray, and Tony Lobianco. It is a 98% from critics, 87% from audiences. Um, so yeah, um, one that I think, I'm pretty sure, I think it tops your list, I think, um, for the crime films. The, uh, if not, it would have been number two. I mean, it's, it's tough yeah. to say that anything's better or more complete than it um basically set the standard for the hard-boiled modern detective noir um neo-noir i guess probably is a better way to say it like pulling it from uh the more traditional uh, 
style and setup of the stuff from the 50s and 60s and 40s um, into a number one sort of like bringing the gangland um, urban gangland connection into the modern age and also kind of casting the detective into the modern trope of an anti-hero or a morally complex individual as opposed to um i don't know i mean i guess there's some moral complexity at all the noir heroes in a lot of ways but this is like at times where this man can certainly be perceived almost as a villain um and brings into question how much is too far in pursuit of the law to achieve an end or you know what and kind of explored in the same year by dirty harry really um just with a different different lens um whereas dirty harry is a much more uh makes you much more complicit Mm -hmm. to the um anti-hero like this almost puts you at odds with his behavior and his actions at times but still he's the character and brilliantly portrayed by gene hackman um Mm -hmm. Probably, you know, Popeye Doyle, one of the better, if not the best performances of the 1970s. It's like in the top five of just memorable and impactful. Um, And really showing like Hackman's range and ability to just imbue this like rugged humanity into a character where it's not just like a black and white portrayal of somebody or um, again with Eastwood where it's almost like the like you're supposed to always view him as this kind of like white knight sort of that's just like fighting against a corrupt system that would somehow give people rights and due process um you know popeye doyle is not that idealized character with the one-liners and the brooding machismo like he's a very broken fractured but still like potent and dangerous man with a strong sense of morality that's easily bent by a sense of justice. Um, The prototype for Jimmy McNulty. Oh, yeah, 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 definitely. A little more uh, violence prone than McNulty. Sure, sure. But yeah, definitely, like that whole, like, guy that is always working his own own angle, basically. Um, ostensibly in the pursuit of justice but a lot of times just in the pursuit of personal satisfaction and Mm -hmm. justification um french connection one of the more iconic movies i think of the 70s too um certain scenes in that movie in particular the chase uh that culminates in the shooting on the steps of the subway platform or Mm -hmm. yeah uh, monorail train monorail yeah I don't know exactly what it's called. The um, DIC or whatever it's called in New York. Right. Um, Like that's like super iconic and the poster of the movie and just one of those, one of those those shots when you're reading like the time life, like films by decade thing. Like they always use that shot or whenever you're reading Mm -hmm. about films of the seventies, like inevitably you see that shot and um, Friedkin just doing a masterful job of filming this movie in a way that's um, visually interesting and compelling while still like acting in service to the screenplay to move, um, move the plot along and keep you interested. Um, so 
I would imagine the most people that are interested in movies for movies sake or who enjoy crime movies have seen French Connection but if you've never seen it like it's 100% worth your time to sit down and watch yeah and uh, yeah if you're somebody definitely that like follows crime and if you haven't seen it it's like it fills in to me like you were i think saying it's like it fills in like a lot of gaps through the timeline and i the thing that it really focuses on the most i think is modern law enforcement tactics um where it's like a lot of times like you're following even if you're following a detective he's always working outside the system to some degree um or you're following a pi like through a lot of crime stuff and to see like to some degree like the inner workings of the police station about talking about wiretaps and like stuff like that is is like a new thing that kind of like is getting added on um during this time period and like bringing it into the modern day was one of the first ones to really deal with race as an issue like in the way that like Popeye Doyle treats black people and we haven't talked about this since Floyd so this was like pre-Floyd that like when we talked about this and I know we talked about the racial stuff like at the time but um <clears throat> watching it again yesterday it's even more uh it's even harder to watch like some of those scenes uh, the particularly the one in the bar um right. you know and how he obviously views black people as to some degree lesser and um you know like even the um the undercover black cop that's in the bar sure. he, he doesn't really treat with that much more respect he's just another source of information um <clears throat> like in the end um and doesn't and doesn't hesitate at all when he's like where do you want it <laughs> um and ends up punching him in the face so he can sell the idea and keep his informant status um yeah, it's 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 a really complex portrayal of um, of somebody who ultimately is like a good cop, um, but a not a very good person. And and like you said, it doesn't side with him. But in the end, in fact, like the ending of that movie is about not siding with that character sure. and showing like the the depths of uh, obsession the only other thing i really took away from it this time watching it was um thinking about just because we're we both watch a lot of crime stuff apparently especially in the modern day we've watched a lot of stuff involving like you know detectives and stuff and it's crazy like how much easier it seems law enforcement has become and how much harder it is for criminals to get away with things to some degree. Um, Cause you think about like what they had to try to get these guys like in this movie. And now we have so much in 2021, like ways of tracking people. Right. It's like, we know hell, like just through like social media, a lot of times, like we know, like when people like where friends or friends of friends or acquaintances, right. like what they're doing, where they're at. Like, I mean, um you know especially the gps like turned on like down to like the exact location where they're posting i mean um and that's just what we allow to be seen it's not even like what can be accessed through like the phone itself and stuff like that and it's just like it has it had to be so difficult back then because this is based off of mostly a true story like right. it had to be so difficult to like 
make a case back then, especially when you're talking about something as large as getting the product into the country. Um, so like what he's doing here, even if it is like, you know, um, you know, uh, adapted or like changed some from like the real story. And I have seen a couple small 30 minute documentaries on the French connection stuff. Like it's like a monumental achievement, <laughs> like what Popeye Doyle is doing. Um, and I, that's the one thing that I think could be lost 50 years later with a, with a viewer that's like never seen it before. And maybe a little like, you know, younger, not as, um, in the crime it's like this is like a monumental like in, impossible task that like the Popeye Doyle character is doing um and I think that's probably like contextualized like if you at the time like people understood that maybe um a little bit more but um yeah but it's like it takes like that kind of like perseverance to do something like this um and ultimately fail but um to get that close and uh yeah but um I think looking at it from that other social perspective um yeah it's still a really interesting movie um wor worthy of study i think agreed yep all right so let's move on to the newer movies that we have here so um the third movie you wanted to talk about um in your top five is straw dogs directed by sam peckinpah Stars Dustin Hoffman, Susan George, T.P. McKenna, Peter Vaughn, Del Henney. It has an 83% from critics, an 82% from audiences. So you want to tell us a little bit about the movie and um, why you put it on your top five? I think you missed somebody that um, that stars in this movie. What? That uh, yeah. certainly is moving up the list of number of appearances. What are you talking about? David Warner. Is he? Yeah, David Warner plays uh, Peter Niles, the child molester. Really? Yes. With his floppy hair and I didn't even dude, seriously, I didn't even recognize him. Like he's pretty he's, he's pretty young in it. Oh yeah. Well, he's yeah. on he's well, he's uncredited. Well, they only credit like four people in the friggin' credits of the movie, so <clears throat> Sam Peckinpah and his minimalist credits. Um so this is based on a novel from the 60s, like loosely based, about um, a American professor of like astrophysics, um, David Sumner, and his young, beautiful wife, Amy, um, who have moved to the Cornish countryside where she is from into the house that she grew up in. So ostensibly, he can work on his book um, that he's received a grant to write in Peace and Solitude of the Country. Um, it's implied several times throughout the movie that the reason that they're there is because he was um, unwilling and incapable of uh, participating in any kind of like civil unrest that was occurring um, in the unnamed city where they were from, um, that he was basically like escaping from modern societal problems by coming to a place that he viewed as kind of being further far away from any kind of conflict or issues um throughout the movie though from the very beginning and indeed like the crux of the um the conflict in this movie is the idea that um there's this group of <clears throat> ne'er-do-well um locals uh led by a guy that amy used to have a sexual relationship with when she was young um that she left behind sort of when she left moved to america 
um him and his friends and his father are kind of like the um like de facto bullies of the town sort of like they kind of push everybody around um and indeed like immediately target david as being like soft and an easy mark um including taking advantage of him when they were fixing his house and kind of leering at his wife and making like sexual overtures towards her and um more or less like aside from a begrudging respect shown to the town's constable um doing whatever they want like in the town and with everybody um dustin hoffman plays david and plays him with a almost infuriating uh passivity um he's incredibly self-absorbed and self-important but will never stand up for anything aside from um, passive aggressively kind of attacking his wife. Um, but in terms of like any kind of affronts or insults that he receives from the men, he sort of just blows them off. Um, everything kind of comes to a, I don't know if it comes to a head. That's not the right way to put it, but um, they trick David into going out um hen or like game hunting um duck shooting i guess i don't know exactly what it is they're shooting at like game hens i suppose um and the main like leader of these roustabouts um rapes david's wife at home and then one of the other like hangers on comes in and rapes her as well um really uh difficult and controversial scene to watch um, not just not only because it's like an extended <clears throat> um, rape scene. I mean, it goes on for what, like probably seven or eight minutes straight. Um, but also because it implies at points that she's a willing participant, like there's some consensual nature to it and that she's enjoying it. Um, so afterwards, um, they go to a they sort of make up somewhat because David fires the men because they're all working on his house. They go to a church function where this David Warner's child molester character is. Um, he goes off with a young girl from town <clears throat> and ends up um, inadvertently killing her. Um, so Tom, who's the father of the rapist, um, assembles his group and they go out to, oh, <clears throat> David and Amy, when they're leaving, they run into the Peter Niles character, the child molester, and knock him unconscious with their car, so they take him back to his house. And so the last 30 minutes of the movie is a siege of this gang of harassers and bullies and rapists basically trying to break into uh, the Sumner's house um, in order to get to Peter Niles, who's being kept there while David kind of like fights him off and asserts his manliness and basically murders four of them um as they're trying to break in so this is a movie that i saw pretty early in my life um i think initially because of the wild bunch because i love the wild bunch so much so i just wanted to watch like more uh peck and Paw stuff um and you know i knew who dustin hoffman was so that was another draw to it um this movie has always made me exceedingly uncomfortable and next to henry um might be one of the more 
physically uncomfortable movie watching experiences that I've experienced. I mean, there's maybe like five or six, but out of movies that genuinely have like artistic merit, like this is one of the, aside from just watching like slasher movies or stuff that's like just over the top violence. Um, this is a very difficult movie to watch. I think, I think it's really interesting because I feel like the questions that it's asking and answering in 1971 are completely incompatible with 2021. So we're 50 years past, you know, the initial airing of this movie. And I think that like, so let me ask you this because this is how I interpret the general like meat of this movie is that it's about what makes a man not only in society but also as an animal like as a creature what is man and what is required to be a man in the world like to have like masculinity and to protect yourself and your family and your home and um much in the same way that kind of like again in the same year dirty harry asked that question like when is too far too far or what you know what is acceptable in like a moral scale even if it's not acceptable in a legal scale and i think that peck and is kind of asking the same question but but let me ask you this. I agree with the question. What do you think his answer is? So Peckinpah's answer is a survival of the fittest response, which yes. is that when pushed to it, you need to be willing to take any means necessary to rise above your adversary. And that's your adversary in terms of someone trying to take your possessions someone trying to invade the sanctity of your home sure your sexual adversary because that's mm -hmm. exactly how um i can't remember what that character's name is the rapist character right um and it's weird because i think that's the whole point of like i think it's an, an unfortunate performance by susan george and i don't think it's a bad i i think that she does what she's supposed to do in the context of the role i think it's an unfortunately written performance in the idea that they paint her as being so ultimately subservient as a woman that a strong arm or a strong dick is what's going to move her in the direction of just like acquiescence you know like that she'll just do basically sure well if he, if, if he thinks that man is animal then woman is animal though too right so i mean like of course, I, of, course I don't she's think... gonna, of course she's gonna cling to the guy who's raping her to some degree and like you know like crests and almost like hold his but shoulder like just the one rapist well that's the guy has, she used to date right right some yeah familial connection to mm -hmm. not the rapist that's just like raping her which is right. like another thing right. that's really uncomfortable yeah because it paints her in the light of somebody that like yeah, dueling rapists. Yeah. yeah, it's true. It's just so willing to like give in to whatever the strength is, that's being presented to her at the moment that it's like that bond of marriage doesn't even mean anything to her because she's willing to give it up. And that's like a complex question. And obviously in our modern age and over the past, like, you know, our lifetimes, our country specifically has always asked like how much do the bonds of marriage matter anymore right like sure. 
what does it really mean to be married to someone? <clears throat> is there really any like true sanctity to those vows or whatever? Um, and this is something that we've talked about like privately as well. But, you know, like has been explored, I think, on talk shows and books and yeah. numerous movies. And Sam Peckinpah's answer is that you know we're all still basically just cavemen. Yes, and you may have a veneer of civilization like painted over you and and indeed like you know david sumner is the ultimate presentation of like civilized modern modern life right and a man that's like become very successful very well respected and in the scope of his world has immense power just based on the prowess of his brain sure and he's and, and, and right and he's all he's all logic right i mean he's yeah. created to be all the all logical like expert mathematician like <clears throat> and then when it comes down to him being put into like this small setting all of a sudden he doesn't have any of that power anymore like sure. he completely removes right and in a way it like it fascinates him like he's cowed by the brash words and actions of these people mm-hmm. who in one way or like completely beneath him but like tower over him in terms of you know even like the rat catcher guy the smarmy hanger on the kind of like is sort of like the jester of this group of like roughs or toughs or whatever you want to call them who still is like able to boss and round and push around um david sumner just because like he's more assured of himself and less of a coward and she calls him you know even his wife calls him a coward and calls herself a coward a number of times, which I think is also the point in the movie where they're trying to not justify, but kind of like smooth over her seemingly accepting the rape. And that <clears throat> I think it's, I, I think he's kind of like stepping backwards and sort of saying like, well, <clears throat> it was more survival instinct than once she got out of the situation and her, her civilized, you know, like ego took back over she was horrified and appalled by what she did um but still like at a moment's notice as soon as the siege is like in in full swing at the end of the movie she's willing to like leave and go with him like to run out the door and you know give herself back to this this man and then even at the end they try and sort of portray him as like a protector um for her love because he's the one that ends up like committing the penultimate murder mm-hmm. um or not penultimate whatever you said the third ultimate anti-fucking murderers mm-hmm. yeah um to defend her like from being raped by this you know one of his his compatriots so you don't, um, you don't read harry knowles all those years not learn a little something about penultimates and, um right so how do you feel about that? Like, cause, and, and then tie it back to, you said like this question isn't even relevant or, or whatever asked or something along those lines in 2021. So what, what do you mean by that? And how did you feel about, like, how do you feel about that statement that, um, that can Paul is seemingly making? I mean, I think that we've moved beyond the idea that like for sexual dominance over another person in some way is like an acceptable measure of worth in society or even like manhood or even the idea that i mean i think that aside from like some archaic thought by like people like our age and older 
I don't even know how much the idea of manhood matters anymore, honestly. Like, I think that, right, like people my son's age and younger and around that age, maybe even a little older, are more concerned with like personhood and like how you behave as a human being, less like, less than how you assert dominance, you know, as a man over other people. Yeah, but you now, yes, I, I I agree with all that. Um, I I still would maybe contend that it exists a little bit more than what you're saying. Um, well, no, I mean it it does. You're right, but but I mean you you work in an environment like you know I mean like um we don't really talk about like you know your your business you know experience and stuff like that ever on here, but it's like you work in an environment where a lot of those like kind of um. What, what are they called like agenic traits or something like that like those masculine traits um like are like you know things that are used in the business world and stuff like that to kind of show like strength and you know person let's say dominance you know and those kind of things and there's like tactics you use and um you know in that world and sh- like those things are still like highly prevalent right i mean no not as much as they were like well, not as much as 20 years ago. Sure. Sure. I mean, it's definitely because it's all slowly changing, but so we have so many people that work. So I work in for decades, I've worked in the warehousing industry in one, one capacity or another. Um, there's a huge amount more like openly gay people in warehousing now, mm-hmm. um, like significantly more, where it's not even a raised eyebrow or a question when you work with someone that's openly gay it's just part of their being you know like nobody even thinks about it um a lot more women in positions of authority um which is another thing that's just commonly accepted nobody really you don't ever think of anything as being like quote-unquote man's work anymore necessarily which definitely 15 years ago was super prevalent where you would think of things as like well that's a man's job this is a woman's job like we can't let a woman do that <clears throat> like we would never not consider a woman for a job just because of her gender i mean it's we don't talk about this much but there's definitely like a change that's occurred where sure it's not um it's not how it used to be and again i think right. a lot you of guys are com- to- you guys are becoming more like us <laughs> well i guess so <laughs> I mean, we actually do things, so. <laughs> not, 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 not recently. <laughs> not, not in the past couple months. <laughs> no, no, I've been doing plenty. <laughs> I'm tired every day. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think that the question would not be asked in the same way. And I think if you go back and you look at the remake of this movie, from 2011 you can see like how much all of those um the more i guess like troubling aspects of this movie have been smoothed over and still maintain the general idea of the movie um particularly the the siege at the end while like smoothing over the idea that um and again like I think that it's been proven through, I don't know, just like time and discussion and, you know, right in the past four or five years, the Me Too movement and there isn't any kind of like 
rape victims like i don't know like it's not a pleasurable act you know what i mean like it's right like her being raped is still her being raped and the fact that like sure they use it as a plot device to somehow create tension like additional tension in the fi- final you know 20 percent of this movie is kind of disgusting yeah and, and we talked about this with dead calm too like you know um that decision to have kidman kind of almost be into the fact that she's having unconsenting sex um was something that was noted by the critics you know in 89 or whatever and um you know and where that i could see the argument where she's going along with it because she has to like which which there are plenty of actual rape cases where the women aren't into it they go along with it because they're fear they fear for something worse you know if they don't um i don't think that's peck and paul's thing here at all like i mean peck and paul i think it's very much like the case where it's like she's in to some degree enjoying it um and um yeah that's kind of gross um like extremely gross um but i i find it so i agree with you like on pretty much everything you said i think we read it the exact same way um i think i think the idea that man is animal um i think the questions have changed but i still don't see it as this in the way he portrays it it's he's taking no account for nurture or psychology or anything like that into account like he's just basing it like you said on this kind of like darwinian like level um i think the i think the idea itself is not abnormal because you have to account for the nature of humans you know i mean um in, in your estimation um but he's he his his answer to this question that they are purely animal um i think is incorrect um but that's what i find most interesting is because you still like this movie right you still think it's Mm -hmm. a well-made movie right yeah so that's what i find interesting about the criticism of this is that people um like the critics of the time a lot of them dislike this movie or dismiss this movie because they disagreed with Peck and Paul's assertion that man is animal. Um, and they found it gross and abhorrent. Um, Siskel, there's a few of them, but Siskel was probably the most notable that I found that was like, yeah, like he like disagreed with that worldview as well. Um and um he disagreed with quote his passion for destroying his own kind that lies beneath his skin he also disagreed with that um but then went on to say that it's a superbly made movie um and he creates a mood of impending violence with great skill um which is kind of where i fall in the entire thing and i think it's probably where you fall is this is still a really well-made well-crafted movie despite my own disagreement with peck and paul's conclusions yeah definitely so i mean the the thing with peckinpah is like i'm actually really surprised that peckinpah hasn't had a resurgence amongst um sure like some of the more like extreme elements of our modern society um 
because you look at like Ayn Rand and she's become prominent again in the past 15 years by people who have taken up this mantle of exceptionalism to kind of as a guise to or as a way to disguise their own inherent racism or bigotry right um i am really surprised that people haven't picked up on sam peckinpah's movies because he's he's like he's like the sartre of directors to me in the sense that like i love his work but inherently like disagree with almost everything that he stands for within the context of his work Mm -hmm. so i like to find my own rationales and reasons and logics behind like what's happening on the screen to make it work for me as opposed to like really considering like what he stands for because if you look at like you look at the wild bunch you look at bring me the head of alfredo garcia you look at this movie he's definitely like really problematic in the way that he views society and man's place in it and i think that it is really difficult to watch like this movie and not be moved in certain ways by it but i think that's an important part of it of him as a director is because it's it's giving you an alternative viewpoint that i absolutely don't agree with but it's doing in a way that's at least compelling and makes you listen to the argument as opposed to being like condescending or dismissive of any other viewpoint because ultimately taken out of the context of this situation I think Peckinpah sees where um, David Sumner is a successful man and does represent in some ways like the modern world. Sam Peckinpah just hates that world. Yes. Sam Peckinpah wants this man to be violent and aggressive and primal in the way that he approaches things. Like he's he's got that whole almost like um uh, what's his name uh shit why can't i think of this asshole's name the sun also rises hemingway like approach to like manly manness mm. um and peck and pause a step further than that because hemingway still is like a man of arts and letters whereas peck and pause like you know violence begets violence and you're not going to bring that violence into my home and i think that's really like really like the most telling whatever like line of dialogue in the whole movie and what really defines the whole movie is that idea that this is what it takes to push david sumner to the point of being like a true man is the idea that someone's going to try and exert their will into his home and then he just completely, you know, will like bludgeon a man to death or throw boiling oil on their face or whatever. I mean, it's um right. Um, yeah, I mean okay. So I don't want to prolong this too too much further, but it's like the idea of the Randian hero is ultimately a man who stands by his value. Is is this correct? Like um a guy who stands by his values, whatever those values are to like unto death, kind of, if I had to like define it, like the Randy in here. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why she gets missing. Like why she gets co-opted by the right. So, so often I think is because like, it's this values based system, like, um, you know, which I mean, you could argue is like, everything's values now. Like, 
um, and what values you choose to ascribe to. But like, um, oh, let me think of the, I don't think um, Rand is phallocratic, like, you know, like the, this, uh, this world dominated by males and their penises like you know i don't think she subscribes to that necessarily inside of the randian hero um like where i think that peck and paul does yes um right and like i like the like the this dweeb this 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 like rationalist dweeb needs to man up um so to speak, and as you said, pour boiling water, um, oil, oil, oil on, on 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 like you know this guy's face and like kill people and maim people in order to prove what a man he is, um, like in effort to um, avenge and protect the wife that like he's let be raped because he's too fucking rational and weak, um, and. Yes, that's not a theory I subscribe to, like whatsoever, um, of what makes a man. But um, it's a really good movie. Like you know, right. if you can, like you know, and it and it raises interesting talking points and interesting discussion points, which is like the basis of I think, like you know, um, this, despite your your industry, um, you know, like occupation. Um, <laughs> Like it's something you still believe in as well, um, but it's certainly like you know the whole basis of everything. Like that, like you know, the the people in like you know my like industry, largely with exceptions to the far left at times, um, are about, which is like creating discussion and analyzing, evaluating, and creating discussion out of things, as opposed to um, taking moralistic, um, you know or socio-political viewpoints on things and teaching things that way it's like think about like the like we we rarely talk about these kind of things but it's like you know i mean like in this kind of in depth with analysis but it's like that's what this movie does is a crazy discussion and right it's a good movie it's well crafted and it creates discussion for how things have changed how things have progressed like what is man like you're you know like in this case i'll say man because it is about men to some degree but i mean like largely even in this portrayal by susan george like what is humankind like you know what what is like what are humans underneath their surface you know um and i think in that way it's fucking fascinating and it's like you, you can you might be grossed out you might be disturbed by like whatever it is like and you can you know compartmentalize those things and still think it's a really well-crafted movie and disagree with the sentiment behind it and lastly i'll just say that what's his name that i can never remember that i love so much um that did brawl and cell block and oh um craig p zoller yes um or p craig zoller yeah like yeah like he, he um s s s craig craig s s <laughs> something like that um anyway uh, anyway yeah, yeah yeah um he makes movies that get criticized for much much of these reasons as well um i don't necessarily agree with those criticisms a lot of times but i'm glad he's out there 
making those movies, well-crafted movies that like raise issues of, of, of similar, when is right. violence justified and when is it not? And like, you know, what is a man? And because I think those questions still need to be asked and re-examined every, always. <laughs> I mean, I agree I, with that. And I, I, I think the difference between Zoller and Peckinpah because they're definitely from the same cut from the same cloth in terms of their filmmaking is that Zoller is really more of a modernist in the way that he views women and yeah. society in general. And Peckinpah is very much a traditionalist in the sense that he views women almost as like set pieces in most of his movies and they can yeah. have personality and character, but they're ultimately going to take a backseat to the driving force of the man in the situation um whereas right. Zoller is not going to be that that i don't know misogynistic isn't the right word but definitely chauvinistic i think so yes but yeah. straw dogs will make you think it'll make you question and mm -hmm. i think unless you're an absolute sociopath it'll make you really uncomfortable several times over right um which is the mark of a truly effective and well-done movie and yeah. In my opinion, like right underneath um the Wild Bunch in terms of Peckinpah's filmography, <laughs> just in um he he falls into his excesses of slow motion a couple times in this movie and <laughs> um quick cuts and flashback cuts and stuff. And I mean that's something where you just either you take it or you don't, I guess. But um for the most part it's a very restrained and well directed movie and takes advantage of that Cornish countryside in terms of the way that it's filmed and um, just definitely worth watching if you can find a place to watch it. So that probably answers the question that this game that is game hens, right? I, bl I believe it's game hens. Yeah, right. Well, I'm saying it's like they're Cornish game hens, right? So it's like, yeah, I think so. if, if it is Cornish countryside, then well, it is. They, they say that that it's it's in Cornwall. So gotcha. Yeah, I don't understand anything about any of that kind of stuff. Uh, Cornwall game hens, nothing. So like, I don't like it. It just like kind of like goes one in ear out the other. Like, yeah, I, I have the most. I don't know. Basic knowledge of any of that stuff, just because of all the British shit that I've watched in my life. Yeah. So so I did look it up. I honestly like I see it now. Didn't recognize David Warner in that role. He was too young. Like and and then all that hair flowing in front of his face and everything, I just did not recognize him um, whatsoever. It was not a slight uh, as you run up the score um, <laughs> whatsoever. I forgot he was in it, so it was completely accidental. Whatever you're gonna put, fucking Tom Jones on that. Like Tom Jones, Tom Jones is gonna be on a list someday. Uh, it's gonna be on a list next. Well, I don't know. That's probably my own personal feelings that I'm exposing about Tom Jones, but it's very possible it could be on a list next year. Um, <clears throat> Because I don't like that movie, but um, <laughs> yeah, um, so that's another one. Okay, one way or another, I guess he'll we'll get that one too. All right, so um, how do you feel about Hoosiers? We talked about Hoosiers before. You don't like Hoosiers, right? I don't just don't care about it. You know, it's an you're indifferent. Okay, okay, yeah. uh, I'll add that here a second. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna make Hackman compete. Um. <clears throat> One way or another, I um, love Gene Hackman. It's a these. I'm gonna watch that fucking Bershnikov movie that he was in with him, um, just so I can like it. <laughs> but I've never seen it, so it doesn't matter. That's true. You don't know if I'm indifferent to it or I like it or hate That's it or true. I'll never watch it. That's true. 
All right. Um, the uh, fourth movie you wanted to talk about in your top five is McCabe and Mrs. Miller, directed by Robert Altman. It stars Warren Beatty, Julie Christie, and Renee Obershanois. Um, It has an 84% from critics and 86 from audiences. Um, so you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and um, why it's on the list? Um, first of all, I think it's really funny that, like, if you would have asked me 10 years ago how I felt about Robert Altman, I would have told you I hated Robert Altman. Yeah. And we've probably talked about Robert Altman as a director more than almost any other director. Like he finds his way onto every list. And I think when I was watching this movie this week, I realized I think I love Robert Altman more than almost any other director. I just don't like like three of his movies. And there's well, you, movies you, you just like his for. later works more, right? Is what it it's is. short. It's it's shortcuts, man. I can't stand shortcuts. Credit Porte is not good either. I don't even consider that a movie. But <laughs> I need to. I need to watch. It, shortcuts is the thing that made me hate him. Mm-hmm. So I really need to like watch Shortcuts again just to like reexamine it, because um, I really do hate that movie. So McCabe and Mrs. Miller um, is a western, um, in the way that only Altman I think could make a western. Um, Beatty plays the titular McCabe, who's a a gambler and kind of a card sharp that um, comes into this town in the Pacific Northwest, I guess it's in Washington State, right? Somewhere yeah. on there. Um, and basically through his conniving and his charm, sort of like takes this town over. Um, opens up a whorehouse and goes into business with uh, Julie Christie's um, Clarice Miller. Is that her first name? Clarice Clements, something like that. Uh, Constance. With a C. Constance. Constance. Um, who's basically like a idiot savant when it comes to running whores and understands like what they need and how to talk to them and how to make them, you know, like agreeable and understand and keep them clean. Um, so they enter into this partnership um, in this mining town um, and become wildly successful just operating this gambling house, saloon, whorehouse. Um, this attracts the attention of a investment firm slash almost like Pinkerton type business um, who offers to buy it. Uh, Beatty, who's or McCabe, who's kind of an idiot, um, declines the offer um and then men are sent in to kill him to basically take his property from him um and he ends up killing all three of the men but also succumbing to a gunshot um and that's the movie pretty much so like most altman movies there's not a huge amount of actual like narrative action that's occurring um most things that happen in the movie kind of like happen the movie happens in front of you while not necessarily like following a really solid through line. So even though Beatty and Christie are the main characters and McCabe and Miller, and definitely the ones that you get the most screen time with characters will move in and out of the action of the movie, almost seemingly like randomly where you'll learn things about them. And it'll be sometimes really complex things about these characters. <clears throat> um, there's a cowboy character, like a cowherd character that's introduced that 
um you kind of learn some stuff about there's love of my life Shelley Duvall's character kind of like mm-hmm. comes in and then goes out um and it's true like this for like almost every other character in the movie and Altman creates this living universe inside this town this mining town where you really like feel like it's it's a living breathing thing yes like to the point where like the town and its residents are almost like a character like a combination character of themselves um it's one of the more beautifully shot westerns ever and in particular the last 30 minutes of this movie when it starts to snow and yes the hired assassins are in town looking for mccabe trying to kill him and mccabe is doing what he can to like hide from um like kind of like dart around town and like hide out and keep himself alive um is gorgeous like one of the most beautiful i don't know like 30 minutes of movie almost ever like that definitely that i've seen in in years and i had honestly forgotten how much i love the way this movie looks is because it's been it's been 20 some years since i've seen this movie um but it never falls below being a western like at its heart it's always still a western and i think it's really important and i think it's i think it's one of the most amazing things about altman in general and one of the things that i have discovered really over the past three years of the podcast that i love so much about him is that here's a guy that can take any genre of film and make a movie that's almost a perfect example of that genre of film while still making it a wholly unique experience that's his and his alone like this movie is a fantastic western and if you had clint eastwood and i don't know brigitte bardot in these roles directed by john ford it would be a good movie still the plot would still be good the action would still be good but it wouldn't be this movie and it's like altman it's almost insulting i I would think like to other directors that here's this man that can make these almost like perfect films in any genre and then never even think about the genre again you know what i mean like he's not a director of westerns he just made a western and happened to make probably one like the 10 best westerns ever just in like in general in terms of like the cinematography and the filmmaking and the direction and the acting and you know the way the dialogue is shot i mean like look at the duel between um the one hired assassin and the cowboy on the bridge that leads from the one part of town to like the the general store or whatever it's it's so fraught with tension and so perfect in the way it's done and any other director would have done like like it would have been filmed so much different in anybody else's hands than the point where like the tension is so subtle like it creeps so subtly into it until you as the viewer are like holy shit like there's no way he's getting out of this and again one of these like tertiary characters that has kind of like moved in and out of a couple of scenes and had some dialogue and you kind of you know like you've you've come to like him a little bit and like oh you know like obviously even though there's not like some overly sentimental speech you can tell that the whores are fond of this guy like they like he, he's treated him well and they like this guy and then all of a sudden he's dead 
And it's like the moment you realize that there's no way that he can get out of it. Like when the assassin says, there must be something wrong with your gun. Why don't you take it out and let me take a look at it? And you realize, oh my God, like he's putting him in a situation where there's nothing he can do. And he's going to be justifiably shot because people are going to say he went for his gun. It's just amazingly done and amazingly filmed. And I'm not a huge fan of Warren Beatty, but I think Beatty is brilliant in this movie. Um, I think Julie Christie has this really incredible, like lost, like soft, lost, broken woman who still is capable of love of like the right man and is trying to make McCabe the right man despite his own idiocy and his inability to see it like there's just there's so much great about this movie and I just I don't know I really love it a lot yeah I I never seen this movie before um so here here are some things that are going to turn people off if they watch this i think like initially like it 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 didn't bother me at first but i i i noticed it immediately um upon watching this is that you really have to like i think just take this film for what it is especially early on because it's trying to create a setting and create that like real life environment that you're talking about but the way he goes about it is the audio a lot of times is off camera yep and it's i can see it being distracting to potentially off-putting for a modern viewer um i found it distracting myself until like i engage with the movie and just let it happen um it makes me actually want to watch the movie again at some point in the near future, just so I can kind of like, again, like be less distracted by that feature and absorb it more. Um, but like once I kind of just like let, let it go and just like continue to like to watch the movie and the images, like it really does actually to me help pull you into that story. And like at the end like i as as minimalist as it is i really loved like that story i love the desperation of it i love like the desolation of like the setting um and yeah so the movie is just really filthy like visually like and i i really like that idea um that it really kind of like shows the west for what i imagine what it is like even like things in the modern day that like we have like deadwood and stuff like that still look as while it shows the dust and it shows the grime and it shows the dirt it's still filmed in this really pretty way and i think like the graininess of the 70s combined with trying to show the West for what it was like creates this almost like perfect environment, like for like what Altman's going for is just how damn dirty it was. Um, But yeah, ultimately, like I said, like I, I really like this movie. I think it really gets good in that last half hour that you were talking about. And um, I think that you just have to lean into it early on. So So an an interesting part about what you like about the look of the movie. Um, 
they built that entire town from nothing. Hmm. And a lot of the town was built by draft dodgers from the Vietnam War. Hmm. So it was people in, that had come to Canada to escape being drafted. And not only built the film, but like we're living there and we're extras in the movie. So when you see things happening in the background or you see people moving around or um, just in general, like the construction of the town and layout of the town, like all that stuff is just based on these these people who like built it and were living there. So that's probably one of the reasons why it's it's not like only a set. It was actually like a functioning hmm you know, like place that these people live. So, right. I, I, that, is, that is interesting. I'll have to, I wonder if my uncle helped build that set. Maybe. <laughs> um, I, I did forget one thing is Leonard Cohen. Yes. Yeah. I meant to bring that up. Like even that it's one of the better opening songs, I think in it from from this time period and I, like because you and i had talked off air about um the cat stevens portion of harold and modern we talked about it briefly on the podcast just now um but it's really just this era where you've got these singer songwriter guys and this is cohen i think a year removed right from cohen's like debut album or something yeah, like that yeah uh-huh. um so just these singer songwriters that would catch the ear of these dudes that were similar in like the film industry you know guys that didn't really have a whole lot of experience or who were kind of like mavericks or auteurs themselves and they would just have these collaborations that were genius i mean you look at everybody's talking at me and um right what's it called uh midnight cowboy and you know just these amazing songs like the the, the traveler song or whatever it's called right um that when you the two song juice in this movie it's used twice, I think, right? Like the beginning scene, and then towards the end, there's like, like more of like a sad refrain of the song that's played. You're talking about the traveler um, song, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah the, the stranger, song. the stranger song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The stranger. Uh huh. Right. Um, I don't know. Just really, really brilliant. Really well done. Very fitting. Yeah. Because the Sisters of Mercy song is used when the during a really long sequence. What is it? Like seven minutes, maybe, or something like that. Six minutes, like when the when the sex workers come to town yeah yeah um and and that's really effective too um like that that track um what what is hilarious is reading a little bit about it was um altman called cohen up to have him do music and he thought that because he has just done mash that like that would be his in with like Cohen and Cohen. Cohen had no idea anything about Mash, and but knew Brewster McCloud <laughs> and was all into it. And like yeah. that's how that deal got made. <laughs> Which is We're funny because gonna... we talked about the oddness of Brewster McCloud. Like it is a really odd movie. It's engaging, but a really odd movie that he did last year. You know, go back a year ago, basically from this podcast. Um, we talked about Brewster McCloud, and um, yeah, it's um, that's fascinating that that's the movie that he knows. But yeah, we're gonna. Um, I know it's not going to be this year because we're already doing a different director. But at some point, we're gonna have to do a um, an Altman uh, retrospective of some kind or just discussion of him because right because um, we're going to already cover most of his top five already, probably right. 
Yeah, and like I said, he's just a guy that, like, for years I would have told you I hated, but I just realized, sure, genuinely how much I enjoy his his style and his movies. Yeah. Um, another interesting little tidbit here, because look, real quick, we just covered we covered Bruce McLeod last year, became Mister Miller this year, Long Goodbye earlier this year, um, for the part two of. 70s 70s crime yeah and then fresh five a couple years ago we covered three three women yep um yeah that's it so far um is images good yeah images is good okay um i've never seen it's that. it's free somewhere right now i think oh okay um i so, maybe or something yeah i think I'll, so I'll, I'll look it up here in a minute um so the other interesting thing I want to note here is that the cowboy that you were talking about is played by Keith Carradine, and it's Keith Carradine's first film role. Really? Um, yep. Uh, who later, you know, for listeners, like went on to play uh, Wild Bill Hickok in like this brilliant like four episode like arc to begin the TV show Deadwood. Um, but yeah, um, I, yeah, I thought that was really interesting um, that he went ahead and ended. But he would go on to some moderate success. But yeah, the Leonard Cohen stuff's really interesting because I mean, I guess the only other movie that kind of gets associated with Cohen to some degree is um Natural Born Killers. Um from a film standpoint, right? Hmm. Like music wise. I mean, aside from like all the um, every everybody everybody using Hallelujah. <clears throat> hallelujah. Right, sure. Um Yeah. I swear there's something else. I'm your man, right? Isn't that a movie about Leonard Cohen? Um. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, sure, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, I mean, it's like a more of like a documentary type thing. Yeah. I'm just talking about his music being used heavily in a movie. I think it's only Natural Born Killers, and um, I know Pump Up the Volume has a Leonard Cohen song in it, and um, there's another movie from the '90s that has a prominent Cohen. Yeah, song, but I can't remember what it is. Yeah, but no, um, this is another really good movie. Um, uh, I just looked it up Secretary. I don't know if that's what you're thinking of, but um, uses I'm Your Man, um, prominently. Oh, well, maybe it is in that movie. Um, I rewatched that last year. It's a funny movie. Like it's 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 a it's a it's, a, it's much funnier than what I remembered it actually being. Um. <clears throat> But yeah, but no, solid movie here. And like, I, I'm, I'm really appreciating the early Altman stuff a lot um, as he comes up. Like, I only knew later Altman besides um, The Long Goodbye, which you made me watch 15 plus years ago. But, um, but yeah. Hate Popeye. St- I, I don't know. I had to rewatch it, but I fucking hated Popeye as a kid. I did not like that movie. You ain't gonna like it anymore today. I'm I'm sure that's probably true. Um, love the cartoon though. You're gonna have to watch Popeye at some point. I'm just gonna let you know. It's gonna happen. I don't know though. I'm gonna be honest with you. I watched Popeye like two months ago, and while I still enjoy Popeye from like a nostalgic standpoint, Uh ain't that great of a movie. Okay. Well, that that that, that's that's good. It's Um, a very confused movie, and it like. 
where I just like heaped all kinds of like effusive praise on Altman and his ability to make any genre his own. Children's movie maybe a little bit out of his reach, so I don't know. Yeah, musical children's movie. Although some of the songs in the movie are hilarious. Yeah, it's got your girl on it though. Oh my god, does it ever? He's large <laughs> and he's mine. <laughs> And he's large. <sighs> she's she's thinking about Bluto. So many, right, 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 right. So many things I could say right now. Um, <clears throat> all right. So the uh, fifth movie um, on your top five for 1971 is Nicholas Rogue's Walkabout. Um, it stars Jenny A. Gutter, uh, Luke Rogue, David Gopapil. Uh, Pilil, um, and then John Milan. It has an 84% from critics and 86% from audiences. Um, you want to tell us a little bit about this movie and um, why you include in the top five? Um, this is another one where, much like McCabe and Mrs. Miller, if you're just talking about the plot, not a huge amount of plot happening here. Um, there's a young brother and sister duo. Um, who were taken out into the Australian outback by their father, who promptly kills himself. Um, and they're sort of just set to wander in the outback, which they do. Um, they eventually come in contact with a young um, Aboriginal teen um, who's on his walkabout, who sort of befriends and becomes like a like a guide and... I don't know, almost like guardian angel um, to these these kids. Um, sort of like a Lord of the Flies light element to it, or maybe even like Swiss Family Robinson, um, where they kind of go back to nature. Um, the boy starts to develop um, romantic feelings towards the girl, which at times it feels like she possibly reciprocates um but ultimately she rejects him um which causes him to uh hang himself from a tree um and her and the brother return to society um and eventually you see some frame of time in the future uh where she's married to a man very similar to her father a guy who's like a business executive to like an oil company or some sort of like mining company um living in a nice house like away from the outback but still in the back of her mind um reminiscing and maybe even fantasizing about um living a life like an unfettered life uh with this aboriginal boy and her younger brother like out in the outback like away from society um and that's pretty much the whole movie now the journey to get from like through that is amazing and freaking gorgeous. Um, I'm a sucker for movies filmed in the outback. I'm just gonna say, um, I love Peter Weir's movies. Um, I really love this movie. Like, you know, it's one of the reasons why I like the Mad Max universe so much. I just have a very large amount of affection for the way the Outback looks. Um, <clears throat> the combination of like desolation and life and just the fact that it's like open and expansive and like the bluest sky and like these, you know, 
the desert like juxtaposed with like <clears throat> brushland and forests and trees and oases oases whatever um i think that i think it's an interesting look at not only the harm caused by civilization encroaching upon i don't know like nature or you know unblemished um natural resources or whatever and that's touched upon numerous times throughout the movie but also kind of the harm that's done by um cultural tourism i guess i would call it like this idea of these of people who come from like the world I don't want to call it civilization or the modern world, but, you know, they come from, you know, like a, a life in, in a city or a life in um, like a safe life and they go out into the wilderness and then they have this idea that they're somehow going back to nature or they're somehow reconnecting with like their past or whatever. And they end up just causing irreparable harm to the people, the people that naturally live in that element that they come in contact with. And mostly because of the idea that at any time they can give up that life and just go back and live their normal, like their old life again. Right. <clears throat> like they're not actually a part of the thing they're trying to appropriate. They're just, you know, kind of visiting it. Um, and I think that that's, I, I think that's really driven home by the idea that, you know, this aboriginal man who's on his walkabout which is you know his transition from childhood to manhood by like going out and surviving in the outback alone for whatever it is like a month 30 days or however long the walkabout lasts um becoming like bewitched almost by this this girl who through no fault of her own i mean through circumstance has been forced to go on her own sort of walkabout but certainly has in some ways kind of um, drawn the attention of this young man purposefully, like willfully, I would say, and then decides, well, this is not the life for me. So I'm just going to say like, nah, I'm not interested, <clears throat> but he can't go back from that anymore. And it's like, yeah. so there's a scene midway through the movie, roughly where, a group of um, aboriginals has come upon the car, the burned out car where the father had killed himself. Um, and the father's it, it's basically almost like a mausoleum in a way, because his, his corpse is like draped across the tree adjacent to it. And the car's burned out. And it's sort of, I don't know how problematic this is anymore, but it's kind of that idea of like the gods must be crazy idea where it's like, mm-hmm here's this thing that these people have never seen before that they're interacting with for the first time. And then they turn on the radio, which still works and it scares them and they run away. Um, but an object that is harmless to us is this object of great fascination and almost menace to this group of people. And in some ways, Jenny Argeter and her younger brother are like that to this young man. Um, one of my favorite scenes in the movie. And one of the things that I, I mean, I, we've this is another director we've talked about several times on the podcast because i just like i i love almost everything that he does up to a point but one of the most brilliant things that rogue does is there's a scene 
shortly after they've walked past the young man hanging himself in the tree, um, which I've often wondered if that's a visual reference to something like um, uh, the Billie Holiday song, like Strange Fruit, like the way they have mm. him, like kind of like mildly swaying with like the the foliage and the fruit of the tree, like kind of hanging behind him. Sure. Like if that's the idea is that his interaction with, you know, basically this invasive white culture like led to his death sort of um right but shortly after that scene they're walking and they come to a point where they're still in the dust and dirt and the road is there and there's a very brief pause where her feet are still firmly planted in the dirt and then she steps purposefully onto the pavement and there's the sound of her foot hitting the pavement and then an immediate cut to where it's like obvious this long industrial road that they're on mm-hmm. you know this like actual like well-maintained you know like car road and no longer in the outback and like that's like the moment like the moment of clarity for her like the moment of absolute choice where she's leaving this life of um what not not ease necessarily because obviously it's not an easy existence but like this almost like fall from innocence and like return to um like this non-natural life in the real world um and from that point on you know she goes back and they're confronted by a guy who's in charge of a mining town that's dead but um but he's still forced to you know maintain it and that's what kind of leads them back into civilization in a way um yeah I, it's again there's not much in terms of narrative i mean a lot of it comes from nonverbal interactions between them and, and um the aboriginal young man um and also interactions between the brother and the sister but with him being more or less ignorant to even what's happening even to the point where not even quite understanding that their father has like killed himself really. <clears throat> um, and her kind of coming of age from being a sort of child to becoming like a woman um, through her own walkabout. Um, yeah, I think it's just, it's a lot of it is a movie. I think that you have to kind of feel really like, as opposed to, like being able to discuss it in a way that oh well then this happens or they say this or whatever you know i mean like a lot of it is very much in the in the realm of like emotion and um the aesthetic value of rogue's direction and just the beauty of the outback itself but um i think it's an incredibly effective movie um to me i think it's uh this and McCabe and Mrs. Miller are my two favorite movies on this list. Hmm. And the two that actually, like, I think have the most meaning to me from just an artistic standpoint, like what I care about watching the most. Yeah. Um, but definitely this one, just because, again, such a sucker for, like, the Australian Outback. Um, just one that I've, I mean, I've seen this movie, I don't know. This and The Last Wave, to me, are, like, the perfect double feature yeah i was going to ask you about that yep. um because i think they're two views of the same subject from two different 
drastically different viewpoints. And I think they both really are about like the encroachment of the modern world into kind of like the perfectly preserved world of the the outback and how man has kind of like how man in a short period of time had kind of ruined um this like culturally rich and metaphysical world of um you know the aborigines in australia um and on one hand it's a very like in walkabout it's a very personal tale dealt from the viewpoint of um you know this young man whose life is sacrificed because he tries to like sort of bring that world into himself kind of and then on the other side a guy who like the whole world is being destroyed because you know i mean peter weir's version is much more apocalyptic but sort of the same idea that like the mistreatment of the the earth and the mistreatment of the people in it have kind of led to this terrible conclusion so yeah well is yes much more apocalyptic i agree um i don't know if this here's my point of view on this having never seen it before is that like i saw a lot of criticism talking about like how this is like an adam and eve story and like you know etc etc and like i don't see that at, Mm -hmm. at all in this um like i wonder if it's not to some degree an apocalypse story and and i remember texting you like after i watched this or maybe like towards the end of watching it like something along the lines of like why the hell are the australians so obsessed with apocalypse stories um and it was because i was watching this and part of what i took away from it was and and this seems like such a small thing but i do think it's important is the radio broadcast that they're listening to on the radio that they still have batteries for and there's actually a radio program that they're listening to at some point that the little boy is listening to that's played by luke rogue um that's talking about like the idea of the end of the world and then there's other stuff in there like where it's like what like he's like learning algebra through a radio program right and like there's another thing with like languages or something like that isn't there like something along those lines like it's like what i took away from it was a very poe-esque like idea with those radio broadcasts was that it's like here's this like young young boy who's completely out of his element and doesn't even like you said doesn't even like fully understand that his like father has killed himself because of like the stresses of whatever like kind of like modernity like he's involved in like has killed himself put them in a situation where basically they went back to yeah whatever you want to call it the non-natural world or whatever like like to to this kind of like preternatural world in some ways like and it's like nothing is going to save you like if the like i took away from the radio broadcast almost the idea was that like if we had to go back to this like older time and like live off the land in the outback and all those kind of things like nothing that we know in terms of our modern modern knowledge like nothing in like the modern world is going to save us necessarily like um it's a completely different lifestyle and 
like because you you don't include those radio broadcasts in there for no reason to me and i thought it was like this like like little subtle statement that like you know part part of the walkabout for like those two kids is that ultimately like if the if the worst happens like you know um like and we go backwards in time then it's like it's it's so foreign to us it's so like that nothing in terms of our modern knowledge would save us very much like the pit and the pendulum like to me of like the the guy trying to save himself through all of like his advanced knowledge of like you know like calculus and geometry and all those kind of things like can't save him from his his demise it was i felt very similar here in the sense that like you only include those radio broadcasts for that specific reason and here's how these two young kids like slowly adapt to try to find a way to survive in those times but here's the aboriginal boy who is like again calling kind of going back to the idea i guess of like you know like man man is animal a little bit like the nature's aspect of man like being attracted and like you know like he's kind of like drawn here and it's like i don't know i didn't know what like ultimately like what i was supposed to take away from this movie if if i was supposed to take away anything but um but I thought it was a really interesting journey. And of course, like, yeah, Rogue's like films the outback in this like beautiful way and stuff like that. So it's engaging in that way. And to kind of see what happens to these two kids once you connect with them from one of the most awful beginnings I've ever seen in an entire movie. Like awful in the way of like what happens to these kids. Like, um Well, because the father's trying to murder them as well. Yes. Yes. It, I knew nothing about this movie before i started watching it <clears throat> nothing not a thing i could only assume what i knew off the title um so to see that happen in the beginning of this movie is one of the most like what the fuck am i watching like in the first 10 minutes of this movie is like that whole thing um and yeah like it's 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 a gripping beginning it's a interesting like you know journey that they go on and i don't quite know exactly what i took away from it but part of it was that i thought it was an apocalypse story to some degree mm-hmm. um in the guise of a coming of age story so i wonder if so i think that's a really interesting interpretation of it and i don't know if that i mean i can see like I can see why you would say that. I wonder sometimes if that comes from maybe just all the movies you've seen that come from Australia tend to be apocalyptic. Right. And it's just like that feeling you get from watching like the way that that world actually looks sort of gives you that apocalyptic feel. Sure. Sure. Um, I've always taken it as, I've always taken it as a criticism. So there's a bunch of movies um, from around that time between 1970 and 1980 that are filmed in Australia. They're definitely criticisms of the misuse of nature and the misuse of the Aboriginal people by the Australian white, white man in Australia, basically. Right. Um, and there's a lot of guilt, I think, about the colonial past. Um, I think more so than almost any other colonized nation 
I think the Australians feel that guilt like really deeply in some ways. And this is just me talking out my ass. This is just from like watching so many other movies. And I think a lot of these movies are not only like kind of odes to the spiritual like ancestral history of of the outback itself and of australia but also kind of like veiled apologies in a way mm-hmm. to the mistreatment of the indigenous population of that continent you know yeah um and i think you can see that in walkabout i think you can see it in the last wave um there's like um wake and fright which i don't think i've ever had you watch but that's a very similar no. idea um the long weekend is another one um about like nature rebelling against man and mm-hmm. it's australian and then picnic and hanging rock i think it has that element to it like you know these rich white young girls like kind of being like stolen back by the land that their families sure. have i can see that um exploited for years and i think that that i I don't know. To me, that's always even like the apocalypse portion of Australian movies like Mad Max and whatnot. I still think is George Miller's criticism of the misuse of the environment as it's, you know, reflected in the way that they treated the environment in Australia. So I don't know. I mean, what do I know really at the end? Like, that's just my suppositions from. Sure. But I mean, yeah, right. Right. But I mean, like, Look, I mean, I don't know shit outside of what you've made, except for the Mad Max movies. I don't think I know shit about Australia, except for what I know through films. And it's films that you've made me watch. And there's plenty that you haven't had me watch. So, I mean, like, I I trust your, like, you know, analysis of, like, what you're seeing, like, through these films. Um, Body Melt is another good example of... What is it? body melt oh body melt okay yeah gotcha another good example of you know what happens to the people when you fuck with them too much like unnaturally kind of Hmm. i don't know they're 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 obsessed with that whole like we never should have turned our back on nature thing and especially shit you could even say dead alive yeah i agreed 100 percent. yeah they went out into the outback and got the fucking monkey or whatever right um so i i i'm really interested in this because i mean we're going to be talking australia a little bit again next week um not to spoil things too much because we're going to be talking about our first peter weir movie right i think um yeah I don't, I don't know um, we, we, we never talked about picnic and hanging rock no we never talked about it on the podcast before huh. um yeah i know it's shocking um because i've always been wondering like when when he's when weir's going to come up you know um and because i just watched one of his movies recently rewatched one of his movies for the first time in christ i would say um, i feel old like 30 years um 30 plus years maybe it witness um and which i really liked a lot but like i I would have never known that's the same guy that made the movies you watch, you made me watch in the mid 2000s, which is, you know, Last Wave and Picnic and Hanging Rock. Yeah. Um, and, and wouldn't necessarily guess it was the same guy that made the movie that we're going to talk about next week. But I mean, um, um, 
but yeah so i'm i'm interested in that and it's like i'm also interested like so the guy that um that plays the aboriginal boy in this um david Galpa Galpa um is in the last wave mm-hmm. um and this is but this is actually his third appearance on the podcast surprisingly um because he's in crocodile dundee right. um and cro- more prominently in crocodile dundee too which we have not discussed um and he's also in the proposition um so this is his third appearance and um that's fascinating to me in the reason in, in the sense that like it's such a small community in terms of film it feels like over in australia and i don't know if that's true i have no idea if they're producing australian only direct to video movies or not like i have no idea what the film industry is like over there i actually could probably we could easily find that out through a friend of ours but i mean um but like i have no idea what that industry is like but it feels like i you see a lot of the same actors um popping up in things that are purely australian like um a lot of times so i found that interesting because i had no idea that that was the person that i knew for many many years later in crocodile crocodile dundee growing up um but yeah the uh, the other thing that i found interesting is like i remember 15 plus years ago i would get rogue and uh we are we are mixed up yeah yep. Um, so we have talked about so far on the podcast, walkabout, um, bad timing, and the man who fell to earth. Um, now we're talking about don't look now. We have not talked about don't look now, which I think is your favorite of his, maybe, right? Uh, Man, that's a that's that is the one that you've always talked about to me. I love that movie, I know you do. Um, um, but that's the one that we haven't talked about. Is there anything else in that filmography that is really good? If you performance, at, okay, um, which we've never talked about, is a really good movie, right? Okay. Um, I actually really love the witches. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is one I've actually seen before, so I, I know that movie. It's a weird. It's but like, I haven't seen it since I was a child. So. It's actually it's funny that we when we were just talking about um. I said that Robert Altman trying to do whatever, like a child's um, musical or whatever. The Witches is the same thing because it's Rogue doing like a rolled doll. Mm. Uh, Cold Heaven is a supernatural thriller. Like, do you know that movie? No, I really don't know anything after The Witches. Okay. And I only know, did, didn't I make you watch Insignificance? last year i'm i'm uh no i don't i don't know that movie that movie is pretty decent and eureka um got your boy gene hackman in it okay fit that in this is that is that actually okay or yeah i mean i think it's a decent movie it's not nearly as good as um that the stuff in the seventies up through, I guess maybe bad timing is the last like really great one. Um, are all the all the ones worth watching? So performance, man who fell to earth, walkabout, um, 
bad timing um don't look now <clears throat> like that's that's what what you want to watch and those movies are gotcha. amazing and then it, there's some stuff like i said like like eureka and insignificance are good i like the witches a lot but it's not necessarily like his style of movie um yeah you know don't look now might be my favorite of his movies it's just it's so hard because they're all so like unique in their approach to right yeah they're all very different movies <laughs> like so many are so very different movies yeah um, but yeah like i i know it's your favorite only you i've heard you talk about that movie so much or reference that movie so much like i i can understand i think like a lot of times like through you might not realize how much you mention it, but it's like through like your subconscious or something like that's your favorite movie of his. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's two amazing performances, and obviously, you know, like how I feel about Donald Sutherland. So, right, sure. Um, yeah, I'm 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 shocked though. Like I I that we haven't talked about picking a hanging rock yet. Like I from Peter Weir. I could have sworn that we put it in. Um, nope. You know that that's the very first Criterion collection movie I ever bought. Really? Well, that's... the first Criterion DVD I ever bought. Yeah. Huh. You it's let like me borrow number... that DVD. I remember. Yeah. It's like number nine, I think, hmm. ever. Interesting. Or something. Yeah. I don't know if you remember, but at one point I was trying to own own them all like in order. Yes, I do remember that. I remember yeah. many many trips to Borders. Yeah. Yeah, I, I own. 200 criterion dvds maybe in that neighborhood are any of them worth like uh like a lot of money now or do you know i look them up sometimes like the out of print ones especially because mm-hmm. straw dogs is out of print contempt is out of print like ron a lot of the kurosawa stuff isn't like available anymore um mm-hmm. pe- people are willing to pay like a decent amount for it yeah it's one of those things where i don't ever know if i would want to sell it because i think like i don't know Sure, I, I get it. Yeah. I like mean, it, Christ, we we see now how hard it is to find shit sometimes. Right. There was a point like four years ago where I would have said I just need to get rid of all my DVDs, and I actually never thought I would want them again. Right. But as it stands, like, you know, I'm kind of glad I own certain things on DVD where I can just like watch it because, and the Criterion does such an amazing job with the packaging and the presentation and the extras that are in in each in each like edition it's just um if you love movies and you if you love like specific movies and you can get them on their criterion edition it's in my opinion 100 percent worth like spending the 40 dollars for that edition of the movie because you'll get everything you ever need to know or care to know about that movie yeah and they're yeah. nice and they look beautiful like watching straw dogs tonight i was amazed by how good the the um transfer was of that film right i i also saw the criterion version of straw dogs as well um and yes it was it was very beautiful looking like yeah it's funny because i don't remember letting you borrow it i know <laughs> it's it's weird huh i know it's crazy um, but um yeah no i i really enjoyed watching all the movies on this list though um like i I, i'm i'm three quarters of the way through the 
these lists now from 71 to 2001. Um, I've enjoyed all of them to one degree or another. Like I, I, it's, I don't think I've disliked a movie that you've put on like your top five, like throughout all of the past three years now. Um, I, I, I don't imagine that's going to change in 2001 because there's only two of them that I haven't seen, I think. Um, so, um, but yeah, no, I really enjoy these. Like, um, like I said, there's, you know, um, there's only two of them I hadn't seen on this list, like at least once, but even the ones that you put on that we talked about or we haven't talked about, but I had seen before, like, I, I, I'm glad I want to revisit them. Um, cause I would have never watched draw dogs ever again. I know. Um, had it not been for this and I, I thought it was worth revisiting. Um, and I definitely just to understand Altman more and like, I think what was really important about him in the seventies. Um, like I was glad to see McCabe and Mrs. Miller and then um, walk about is um, yeah, it's just this really solid movie. And I think it gives me a better understanding of, I don't know, rogue and Australia and a lot of other yeah. things. So that's just beautiful to look at, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There, there is this guy that I found at the contemporaneous review. I will just mention this very quickly. It was the only, it was the only, um, like negative review I could actually find contemporaneously at the time. Um, but one thing that he said um, in this review, it shows you the difference between 50 years ago and now is he says that um, the cast are an attractive lot. And um, as some lyrically nude bathing scenes demonstrate, Miss Gutter possesses one of the liveliest, liveliest young bodies on public view where the eye the only judge walk about might be considered a treat like can you imagine can, can you imagine like that that statement being made like i would say even 20 years later yeah it's weird though because like I try not to ever bring up how attractive. Oh, look, she's women fucking are. beautiful. Like I get it. It's just it's. There's nothing wrong with like I think someone like pointing out how aesthetically pleasing someone is without their clothes on. I mean, it's an it's a attraction point I think to movies for most people. Um, but in a professional review, it's kind of creepy. Yes. I guess, like, if yes. you and I are having a, and again, one one of the reasons why I try not to be like, yeah, man, like, her boobs are all out in this scene and whatever. I mean, it's like, I think Susan George is gorgeous, especially mm -hmm. like early to mid seventies. Susan George, one of my, <clears throat> like, from a physical standpoint, she's one of the most beautiful actresses of that time, in my opinion. Um, but what credibility do you have as a reviewer if, like, that's what you're pointing out? You know what right. I mean? Sure. Well, I guess that's the one positive, right? Like, you know. like otherwise, why aren't you just watching pornography? You know? <laughs> I mean, seriously, like, if that's the thing that you're taking away from the movie, that yeah. can be something you appreciate personally and, like, <clears throat> internally say, like, yeah, it was really nice to see this actress naked. But, like, if that's the thing that you're going with, like, 
you know, let me introduce you to Pornhub, buddy, because <laughs> you just go nuts. You never have to watch a movie again. Right. What else is Susan George been in? Uh, a bunch of stuff you've never seen. <laughs> She's been in some really bad movies. Gotcha. She was in Mandingo. Um which okay. is a movie I don't like to admit that I have watched like multiple times. Mm. Um, she's in this horror movie called The House Where Evil Dwells. Um, she's been in podcasts. okay. She's she she's in. The, I I as a kid I saw the Jigsaw Man. Yeah, she's in that. Mm-hmm. Okay. She basically stopped acting at a certain point and then was like only doing things sporadically. So yeah, it feels like um pretty much like after 1989 she didn't do anything and then well, she um, got she got married gotcha <laughs> and she stops acting until after her divorce mm. or her husband died i'm not sure but she like starts taking small roles again 2008 2009 somewhere around there she's got a few roles i think i love susan george and it's something that we've never talked about because like why would we yeah why would it ever come up but right. um and her like her movies are bad. Like the house where evil dwells is a terrible fucking movie. Mm. But I love Susan George in it, and she makes like the most amazingly like disturbing like faces of horror and disgust. It's I've seen this movie, the house where evil dwells. Oh, yeah, I think I saw um, it on Tubi during like oh you might it was on. Tubi I was going to say while. during COVID, huh? <laughs> but in the past two years yes yeah we're <laughs> we're the samurai spirits take over the people's bodies and they see like the face of the samurai ghosts and then yeah, 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 yeah. i, I have seen this yeah yeah um it's got double oh, in it yeah terrible terrible movie but it's i really enjoy watching it so right hmm. yeah that's a movie i rented for no reason you know you know what that's a movie i bought at best buy for like 7.99 and i bought like six movies at once and it was remember when i didn't have cable at um the haunted house that i lived in mm-hmm. and i would just like buy like 10 15 movies a week yeah and that's how i kept myself like sane just was like watching shaded. those movies yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. and the house where evil dwells was one of those movies i bought at that time yeah you live actually you have lived in a house where evil dwells at that point it was true it was scary i don't know if it was evil it was just fucking annoying (laughs) so but yeah all right well no i really enjoyed the movies on the list um i recommend all of them the people that are at least like people that like are really into movies if they haven't seen any of these yet and um you know what, what do you if you had to choose like we don't want to talk about this much. It's my last thing for you. Is like for cat casual movie fans, which movies would you recommend on this? People that are less than casual and more like kind of like hardcore people that like movies, like the list one? of these five movies. Yeah, uh, I would say for a casual fan, I think the only thing I would recommend maybe is French Connection. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe straw dogs, I think, but that's, I think that's very specific taste. Um, I think all five movies are essential viewing for people that enjoy film, you know, who consider themselves like right. 
have any kind of pretension about their own like taste in the movies and whatever i think are um i think all five are definitely worth watching yeah yeah i think that's right I, maybe harold and maud to go along with french connection maybe um I'm harold not sure. and maud is so <laughs> awkward like yeah and it like it it's very fractured in its narrative sometimes it is yeah Especially when it's following Harold, I think for the most part, like it just it gets very, um, very esoteric at points. Yeah. And I don't know if it's really sure. I feel the same way about, and you you brought this up when we talked about. It. I feel the same way about Altman. Like Altman will be in the middle of a scene and will have all the conversation coming from three people off camera that you never see and completely overdub. The dialogue of the principal characters on screen so you have no fucking idea right for five minutes what's actually right. happening and you really have to like <clears throat> dissect action and intention of the actors to figure out what's occurring to maintain like your semblance of a narrative yeah and well, altman just does that because he's like fuck it like i can so well you know walk about and audience scores walk about in the cave are the same in 86 percent you know and then the lowest on your list is actually straw dogs from audiences um at 82 yeah but um the highest That's is harold and, harold and maude at 93 from audiences and then it's and then it's french connection at 87 like um maybe i don't give people enough credit i don't know i just i i just feel like i've i've watched enough movies with other people to learn that i don't ever want to watch movies with other people <laughs> and <laughs> I've had I've watched like some of these movies with people and had them like either be annoyed or bored or right talking all over the place and <laughs> ruining my life. Oh, the talking! It's so trying, fucking trying to have a conversation. Man. Yeah, there's any other time other than these two hours, you know, just shut the <laughs> fuck up. Or any of the other two hours that I'm going to watch a movie. Right. I've gotten to the point where I tell people not to text me. Like somebody will be texting me. I'm like, look, I'm watching a movie. Like I'm not going to. I'm not going to respond to you right now. Oh, that person won't be listening to this. Um. So. Yeah. Um. Next week's really good too. Um. Yeah. I. There's one movie I didn't rewatch out of that list because, like, I know it so well. But I might still like go ahead and rewatch it for the hell of it because it's that good but i've probably seen that movie at least 30 times in my life i would say yeah i'm excited um, to talk about all five of them yeah i am too um so one of my favorite childhood movies on the list mm-hmm. it is um it's a good thing you're not ranking um so <laughs> that'd be number one <laughs> one with a bullet um seriously haven't watched the the five from 2001 yet Gonna give you a preview. Not gonna shit on the movie. Don't even dislike the movie. It would be number twenty out of these. Um, <laughs> out of in two thousand and one. No, 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 no. Like out of the twenty movies of these four oh, lists, oh, that oh, movie my... you're talking about would be number twenty, probably. Yeah. Um, um, but there are things I really appreciate about it. So. Um, so I'll give you a preview for next week to where Frank and I probably like end the podcast because like I end up saying like three things that are really offensive in some way about this movie. Um, just, I mean, it's not offensive. You're just wrong. So it's fine. <laughs> gotcha. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. We'll be back 
next week with the top five movies in 1981. And please listen to our most recent uh, Best 30 Minutes podcast, where we talked about card collecting for 60 minutes as opposed to 30 minutes. And thanks again. Have a good week. Deuces. Have a good week.